I have a very off-topic question about this cocoon. It feels like a thing that would be like used for like skincare products or something. Do you know if there's like a line of like lungfish cocoon mucus skincare? I feel like this is a thing. I you just should have like patent that right this. now. Yeah. You think? Yeah. yeah. I bet it would be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Organic, natural. Yeah. <laughs> Can I go back to the podocyte thing real quick for the podocyte expert? <laughs> we get off skincare for a moment. I'm like, <laughs> Welcome to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast, well, usually discusses off-label and unapproved medications, but not tonight. My name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have a big crew. Nayan. My name is Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I don't know how you would have COI for this episode. I don't even have a pet, so I don't have COI. I don't even have a pet. <laughs> I tweet at Captain Chloride. Josh. Hi, Josh Waitsman here. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. Uh, I tweet at Jay Waits. Although we do have pets here, I also have no conflicts of interest with this episode. Sophia. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambrusso. I'm at the University of Colorado and at the Denver VA. I'm assistant professor and I tweet at Sophia Kidney. Uh, Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hinamat. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnil in terms of conflicts, even I don't have any pet. But in terms of disclosures, uh, I do own a copy of uh, From Fish to Philosopher to keep on my bookshelves, but it's one of the most boring books. I could not finish it. <laughs> I hope that does not get me expelled from the free printer. It'll get you expelled from nephrology. You need to maintain the lie that you love that book and that you sleep with it underneath your pillow. Jordy. I'm Jordy Cohen. I tweeted at Jordy underscore BC. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. I don't even not just not have no pets. I have no plants because I cannot keep them alive. So I think I'm free of conflicts for this episode. So tonight we have a special treat. Tonight we are going to be talking about one of the regions in Neff Madness, not just one of the regions, but the best region of Neff Madness, Animal House. To help us discuss this, we have Kelly Hyman from University of Alabama in Birmingham. She's an assistant professor there and uh, a recent American citizen. Is that true? Kelly, tell us that story. (laughs) Uh, That is true. I have actually lived in the U.S. for 20 years, um, originally from Guelph, Ontario, Canada. But uh, as of last Tuesday, I officially became an American citizen. Excellent. Excellent. We look forward to you. But I'm still happy to report, though, that the Canadian women's hockey team beat the Americans yesterday. So Barely. 3-2. Close game. Close game. (laughs) I mean, they were up 3-0. They were up 3-0. I get it. But the men's team, the U.S., I know they're out, but they beat the Canadian men's team, right? Uh, We're not talking about that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Solidarity to dual citizens. I'm also a dual American Canadian. Good people. Yeah. And Swap, you're you're a dual citizen. Is that right? Uh, No, no. India doesn't have dual citizenship. So I had to give up Indian citizenship to become a Canadian. So they won't be able to draft you. They will not. (laughs) Luckily, they won't be able to draft me. Okay, so Neff Madness, this is the 10th year of Neff Madness. I can't believe it's been going on that long. A few years ago, we came up with the idea of doing an animal house, kind of looking at some of the bizarre nephrologic and homeostatic strategies from the animal world. And it was so popular, it was brought back and then it was brought back again. And in this second iteration of Animal House, we brought in Kelly as our expert and she did such a great job. And we were thinking about doing it a third time. There was no question that we would go, we would go back to the well and ask Kelly to join us. Kelly, what are your thoughts about Animal House? Just general. Well, I don't understand why it doesn't win. 
every year. So that's shocking to me because nature has provided us such amazing examples of our physiology or how I like to think as humans, our limitations to our physiology. So Kelly, Swapno has the hashtag for why they don't win. Yeah. Swapno, what's that hashtag? Blue ribbon fail. Blue ribbon fail. Yeah. There's no other explanation for why it doesn't win every year. It should win every year. You know, the hagfish, there were tattoos. What else do you need? I'm curious though, Kelly, how are you so cool? Seriously, <laughs> you are a physician. You um, know all of this stuff. I mean, I don't think we even know. I don't think we've, um, you're like an iceberg. We've just seen the tip. Um, But, you know, I did biology major in college and I think that made me less well-rounded and less um, acceptable as a medical student or a medical applicant. So what is it about you? Why have you become this amazing expert? So I uh, actually learned physiology through comparative physiology. And so my undergrad degree is actually in marine and freshwater biology. My PhD is in zoology. And so it wasn't until my postdoc where I switched to biomedical research. So my training is in comparative physiology and my background is in evolution and how um, different fishes can live in different environments and how they osmoregulate. And why some can't. So that's how I learned physiology. And even though today I work with mice and rodents, I still enjoy thinking about nature and all the different organisms out there and how they survive and thrive. Is that an unusual trip to be in a PhD going through comparative physiology or is that pretty standard? For standard in what sense? I, I, you know, I don't know anybody else. None of my colleagues are comparative physiologists, right? So uh, I mean, I'm in the clinical division. Everybody, half of us are MDs, half of us are PhDs, a couple MD PhDs, and most people were trained, you know, in human physiology. So, but there are a few of us out there in the comparative world that switched over to the biomedical side. So we're out there. Nine, tell me about your, do you have any uh, enough madness memories? I, I have a losing record in enough madness, but I do have a plaque on my wall because I was in first place after the first round of Neff madness last year. And, uh, but I picked uh, Hif PHIs as the winner and just got you got crushed. annihilated. I got crushed. Wh- who made who made that? Did you make that pl- plaque for yourself? I make all my own awards, every single one. <laughs> That's outstanding. <laughs> first in first place after the first round. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Outstanding. It's a win. It's a win. <laughs> Clean win. Clean win. Outstanding work. Josh, you got a you got enough madness memory. Yeah, I think one of my favorite Nefmatis memories is as a fellow getting together and just picking as a program. So that's one of my favorite like traditions that's come out of this Nefmatis process is that it really gets groups of people together to have like the nerdiest fights in history of like whether Team Hagfish should win or, uh, oh, I forget like what inferior animal was paired up against Hagfish last year because Hagfish just sort of dominated the whole way through. Um, but like really like dueling these these concepts against each other and helping us get excitement about our field. I think it's a really fun tool and, and a fun way to get fellows and trainees and even faculty members who are, you know, as we're getting older, still excited about these concepts. Sophia, got any, got any game here? So I, uh, I get to be a part of a lot of the infographic development on the visual abstract side for Neff Madness. So I got to make the visual abstract for the hackfish and for the marine iguana last year. To be honest, I was making both of those, but really the marine iguana, I was making it. And I brought my, at the time, five-year-old down and I was like, Hey, what do you think of this? And he's sitting on my lap and he likes to do this and get in my way and keep me from actually doing my work. And I was like, what about the marine? He's like, Oh, mom, I know this already. It's like the marine (laughs) iguana (laughs) and he knows about all that. And it's because of octonauts. So um, he what? also knows about what, what, what is it? What, what, what's it do do? Octonauts is a children's. It's this really children's cheesy children's show, and it talks about marine animals and or animals that are you know penguins and everything like that. And they go in and they try and teach things about the animals and also have adventures. Uh, but in Octonauts, they have a, an episode on the marine iguana. So he schooled me first. Kelly, are you consultant on the show? <laughs> Yes. Yes, of course. Yes. I should have declared that at the beginning. No, but if they're looking for somebody, I'm available. I feel like this is the solution to the labor crisis in nephrology. We just need to start a kids TV show of nephronauts. And if we get the kids like traveling down the tubule at the age of four, like 20 years from now, career crisis solved. You know, this is a little off topic, but I was thinking we should start a game that's actually more like the Oregon Trail, but we're going through the nephron. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you died of dysentery. Yeah. You- yeah, I was going to say you died of volume depletion. 
Jordy, what's your uh, Neff Madness memory? I had a blast convincing the Crick uh, investigators like four, I think three or four years ago to, to actually put in a Neff Madness, like a, an actual entry. It was before AJKD had sort of come into our neck of the woods. And I don't think it, like any of the investigators even knew what it was because it was sort of an, a bit of an older crew at the time. They're amazing. They do great research. They just, you know, weren't on Twitter. And so I, uh, so yeah, I, I sent out an email and I created a, a, a poll that everyone had to vote for each bracket and uh, submitted it on behalf of the Crick investigators. Oh, that's it awesome. Felt like, that's it awesome. It felt like it was, uh, it was, it was infiltrating sort of the, the old folks to get them more excited. Now, um, like half of them are on Twitter. It's pretty great. It is great. Nice it work. Is. So I know that I met Swap through Neff Madness. Like we may have interacted on Twitter before Neff Madness, but I, it was the second year of Neff Madness and Swap was, I'm, I know you're not going to believe this, but he was arguing on Twitter. I mean, it was hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that and that interaction then led to him saying, "Hey, we should do a journal club." And then we started NFJC, and that, and that and so I, that's my my kind of early swap and Neff Madness memory. And that's like uh, that, uh, that was the year before we started Blue Ribbon, right? Uh, that was yeah, the first yeah, that time was, I played Neff yeah. Madness, and I and I got third rank or something. And ever since you started Blue Ribbon, I was in the bottom uh, since then. Uh, which is why uh, you know that's my credit uh, to my my claim to fame is that I invented the blue ribbon fail hashtag. So basically, Swap, you were the second loser, and so you <laughs> could you were a bad you were a sore loser, and you had to create the blue ribbon fail. No, but I think exactly. it gives us you a sense of how similar that we think is that when when I was picking the winners, Swap did really well, and when we ended up to the blue ribbon panel, Swap does terrible. Swap, do you have a uh, do you have a plaque for your third place finish? I actually I gave away a <laughs> you, you, you should make one if you don't. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Man, you make you make nice ones. It seems like Swap should publish his picks so someone can pick the opposite things and then do really well and run the table. That would be like a good strategy. Yeah. So I tried that once, right? I had two uh, entries. I did one and, and I did the other and I still lost. Uh, it, <laughs> there are so many uh, permutations and combinations. I do very poorly on my Neff Madness. I've got, I've only got two years under my belt, but I, I, I always, don't impress myself. I think I'm probably in the same boat as you, Sophia. I always vote for like Animal House all the way through and it just never wins. Kelly, any good memories from Neff Madness? Any favorites? I mean... I was really surprised how much people embraced the hagfish. That was pretty exciting to see. You know, I thought for sure the aglomerular seahorse, which is so cute, people would fall in love with that. But even the other day, the hagfish was re-liking it's stuff. Back. So, yeah, yeah, it's no back. Yeah, no glom, no love. That's yeah. the that's my feeling <laughs> yeah. on this yeah. one. You don't have a podocyte. There's nothing worth talking about. Back <laughs> that thing has not evolved over year, you know, millions of years. It's got something going on. Okay, let's let's go through. We are doing Animal House 3. We have four animals that have interesting nephrologic problems to solve. We are going to lead off with the, um, uh, the top two. We're going to be giraffe versus whale, representing the giraffe as swap mill. Tell us about the giraffe. What kind of problems does the giraffe face? So I, as a blood pressure nerd, giraffe is so fascinating, right? You may think about it as such a quiet and timid animal, but it has got a 20, it's 20 feet tall. So think about the heart has to pump so hard that the blood pressure reaches its its head right up there. So, you know, cool measurements have been done showing that the pressure in the carotid arteries is like what, 200 millimeters, but 200 millimeters of mercury, right? That's stroke territory, uh, but, but that's not it. Uh, so if you go to the base of the neck, the blood pressure reaches like 300 to 360 millimeters. This is just insane uh, how, how the blood pressure can be so high. And there are so many things we can talk about, but this is not. There's not enough mercury madness. to measure it. You must need, so, <laughs> you can't use the mercury mammography. No longer. They stole them from us. You <laughs> Exactly right. But but this is not cardiology madness. Uh, it is nef madness. So, so why are we talking about the giraffe here? So if the blood pressure is that high, that pressure is also reaching the kidneys. So imagine what would be happening in the kidneys. Uh, you know, the GFR must be insanely high uh, if all that pressure is going into the afferent arteriole. And the GFR is, you know, I'm envious of their GFR. We'll be talking a lot about size, I'm sure, as Team Whale is coming up after me. The giraffe's GFR is like, the measured GFR is 342 
mils per minute right it's like you know take that uh, you diabetes hyper filtering people uh, <laughs> which is again though you know you may think <laughs> you may think 342 is high but it turns out that it actually when you normalize it to body weight it's a little bit lower it's like 0.7 ml per minute per kg how does the kidney handle the pressure and bring down the gfr and the, the write up is really cool you know these are all the facts that i you know i had no idea i knew about the blood pressure but i didn't know anything about what happens in the kidney and and tiffany's uh, write up goes through the scouting report goes through you know all the factors that could affect the gfr but it, the cool thing it seems is that the renal capsule is is very thick uh, and that raises the uh, that among other factors increases the interstitial pressure uh, which is a key factor here in in uh, in regulation there also seems to be you know some a valve like structure at the junction of the renal vein and and the venous well, well slow down so this is but this is not an uncommon problem our, our kidneys have to be able to prevent systemic blood pressure from being transmitted into the glomeruli and we have these these arteriolar pre arteriolar sphincter on the arteri on the afferent arteriole there are sphincters that prevent that systemic blood pressure being being transmitted into the capillary beds throughout all capillary. That's a standard bit of physiology. Is that just not enough in the giraffe's case because the pressure is so high? Yeah. I'll, I'll let Kelly speak to that. I'm hey, not Kelly, why don't you speak to that? I think, I think you're right. I mean, all vessels have the ability to auto-regulate, right? That's mm-hmm. what maintains our GFR it, when we go from laying down to standing up and things like that. But the problem is this pressure is so high and it's chronically high, right? It's not just an episode of, of heightened blood pressure. So they have to adapt so that they don't have this like super high filtration. You got to remember too, they live in an environment. It's Africa. It's hot. They have to, you know, make sure they don't lose too much water. They're going to be dehydrated right? So they can't have this high GFR and just like excrete all this urine. So I think they've evolved these mechanisms to kind of limit their filtration. And what's I think really fascinating is that this interstitial pressure they're estimating means that the, the oncotic pressure in the Bowman's capsule is about 45 to 50 millimeters of mercury. Well, in other mammals, it's zero to five, very low, right? And so that's going to prevent too prevent filtration. filtration. Yeah. So what, I think what it's really interesting to that massive osmotic pressure. They have higher albumin. So what, what is that? No, it's um, again, this hydrostatic, it's this interstitial pressure from inside the kidney. And so, oh, I think it's that, that really tight fibrotic capsule is the argument that it's just squeezing hard yeah. on the kidney. So it's like not an oncotic pressure. It's a hydrostatic, it's hydrostatic pressure. Yes. Sorry. Down. I said the wrong okay, one. No problem, yes, no you're problem. right. Okay. Sorry. Are we referring to this G suit that mm-hmm. they talk about? Because I love that but, terminology. I don't know. <laughs> it's Jordy, the same thing it? that they have in the legs, right? It's, they have that same extreme pressure that they can build up that it's just like compression stockings as described in the article, but they actually have the same thing in their legs as they do in their kidneys, right? With this level of hydrostatic pressure that they get. Now I'm just going to say with the legs, isn't it true giraffes basically never sit down? Like they're standing 23 and a half hours a day, something like that. My kids taught me that. Then it must, it, be, right. it must, it, it I mean, must be true. Try finding a chair in an Ikea for a giraffe. You know, it's really hard. My kids also taught me there was a 11, 11 kilogram heart. Yeah. Well, so, so again, you know, we have the heart pumping against this high pressure. So it has to be really thick water, right? Heart. Okay. I feel like I have a question about this fibrotic capsule that I can't wrap my head around. So, so the idea of like really strong hydrostatic pressure pushing back on kidney reminds me a lot of like the original like page experiments for a page kidney where you wrap cellophane around a dog's kidney and just squeeze it really hard. And that leads to like high renin, high angiotensin, high aldosterone systems and crazy high blood pressure. And I don't remember it causing like this big hydrostatic pressure backup. Is there some like compensatory RAS system change in the giraffe that lets it get by with this high hydrostatic pressure? Or like, do we just, is it just too hard to do like those single nephron uh, measurements in, in giraffe? Man, that sounds like a smart question. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Peter B. in Denmark and Tobias Wang are two of the researchers that have kind of spearheaded this research over the last five years. And they did a bunch of plasma hormone measurements. And I don't remember them being anything, you know, super high or fascinating, but you know, what would the comparator be? I don't know what a baseline mm-hmm. giraffe, you know, uh, comparator would be. I think too, so yeah, it's a great question. I don't know how the hormones are, you know, involved in perhaps part of this. But the other thing is too, I think it's not just the capsule, it's this valve between the renal um, vein mm-hmm. and the vena cava, which causes again, this back pressure also seems to be quite important for maintaining that hydrostatic pressure. Is that a thing that anyone's thought about like developing for a person? So like an artificial renal vein valve to give you some back pressure? In case someone has too high of a GFR and you want to yeah, lower I mean, their GFR. Yeah, I mean, inhibitors and ARBs. 
you know, we have all this mechanical circulatory support. If you wanted a mechanical renal support, there's got to be like an Impella R or something on the way, or Impella K. Why don't they just do that while they're doing the renal denervation? Just add in a little <laughs> That sounds really easy to do. I'm sure. The, the <laughs> renal denervation is in the renal artery. This would be a whole yeah, new poke. This would be vain. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tavern, but for the kidney. That's the limiting factor, the extra poke. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. The only um, limiting factor. Okay. I, mean, I do want to bring up, though, just the interesting thing. And I don't know where this goes from the genetic perspective, but they also talk about the FGFRL1 in the giraffe. Mice with that um, genetic makeup, you try and give them angiotensin 2 and they don't become hypertensive, which I think is fascinating. So there are clearly some genetic things that are occurring and who knows how it's modifying their um, their physiologic mechanisms. But truly that that is something that's clearly contributing and we can't ignore. And, and obviously we don't know what it's doing yet, but that is something I, I imagine is going to elucidate soon. What does the gene normally do? And what? And what... So we don't know. Uh, it, it's the fibroblast growth factor receptor like one protein. Mm-hmm. So if they take the giraffe version and knock it into the mouse, Mm-hmm. Uh, and infuse angiotensin too, they don't get, you know, hypertension. That's the really cool part, right? There may be implications for us, right? We may learn something that could perhaps be, you know, used in some way or the other. I look forward to future children. We'll call them giraffe children that are completely immune from hypertension. They are very tall too. They're good at basketball. And they have very big hearts. I'm really oh. curious about this. And I don't think there's been any research in this area related to that. I don't have a kid yet. It's my husband who introduces me to these like hilarious, like animal uh, articles and memes. Uh, there is a corgi giraffe and this is real. There are actually several. They are pygmy giraffes that are short giraffes. They they have short legs. They are not as, as tall, but proportionally they do look just like giraffes. And they're actually called corgi giraffes. There's one in, in Uganda that my husband sent me the article on. I can it that his name is Gimli, named, named after Lord of the Rings. For anyone who's not nerdy enough to know that, uh, I'd be surprised anyone listening <laughs> to this podcast doesn't know the reference. But yeah, it's it's a pretty cool idea that they exist. And I'm curious if their physiology is different because they don't have to necessarily manage quite a large um, breath of, of blood flow. Um, someone and if someone we should infuse some angiotensin into those little cord Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if maybe yeah. their threshold for angiotensin 2 is different, for instance, if they can handle less than the larger giraffes. I think they have done measurements, though, in juvenile giraffes who are much smaller and before their necks even elongate. And what's really interesting is that as the neck elongates, blood pressure starts to rise as well. So it would be interesting to know in these little these little giraffes, these pygmy giraffes, if they have uh, what their blood pressure is. And, you know, they'd be much easier to study than yeah. these full-size adult giraffes. Where's the fun in that? I will say if anybody runs into Peter B at a meeting, he usually or used to carry with him a preserved giraffe kidney and you can see how thick the capsule is. It's amazing. We wanted you to say he carries around a pygmy giraffe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that would have been great, but... It's just oh, wait, the kidney. How, how does he how does he carry around the kidney with him? Is he, it like on a necklace? Is yeah, it like in a backpack? I like, mean, where do you put it? Preserve, it's preserved with plastic. They uh, And one yeah. of their expeditions actually preserved it to show... And so he used to always have it hanging, hanging at his poster and you could go. And so I went and saw it and and touched it and it's impressive. You're saying it's saran wrap. No, it's like, actually they (laughs) perfuse plastic through it or resin through it. Like, like, okay, excellent. Excellent. Let's move on to the whale. Josh, you've got the whale. What what physiologic problems does the whale have to deal with from a kidney standpoint? Like we talked about hydrostatic pressure being a problem going up for the giraffe. I think the whale has its own problem of hydrostatic pressure because it takes its whole body and goes down. Uh, And every further bit of sea it goes under, the hydrostatic pressure goes up and up and up to some crazy amount that it's really hard to wrap your head around how much hydrostatic pressure the whale is undergoing. Um, So besides all the cool stuff about whales that we think about behaviorally and how smart they are and how like cool social structures they have. They have a really unique kidney problem of how to deal with the hydrostatic pressure and how to do waste removal in the setting of this high hydrostatic pressure on the interstitium that would favor transport of small molecules back in as opposed to letting you get them back out. Um, so there are a lot of neat adaptations that, that Tiffany has in the right in, in the scouting report here. I think one of the coolest is that the whale actually doesn't have like two kidneys. It has lots of renules or renacules. There are lots of words for these things, but they're basically little grape-like clusters of micro, or mini kidneys 
that allow it to like make lots of small amounts of urine that it can then squeeze with a smooth muscle and shoot out all the urea waste before it takes a dive. Um, so it doesn't have that urea go back into the, into the body, which I think is really cool. Um, and I don't think I have any kind of parallel for that in human physiology that I've ever heard about. I think the other thing I love about the whale kidney is that there are, although smaller glomeruli, many, many more glomeruli, which therefore makes it a much, much better organism. Uh, and so it's like the, the anti- many glomeruli. Remember, remember the hagfish only had six glomeruli, but they were really, really big ones. But they were right. The whale so is the anti-hagfish. <laughs> lots of tiny glomeruli, each of which is hooked up to a tiny tubule. Um, but there are many more glomeruli and tubules than you would expect for an animal of this size. Uh, it's like eight times more nephrons than predicted by their weight and a hundred times more nephrons than a human. Um, so I thought it was interesting that the whale adopts this kind of uh, evolutionary strategy as opposed to other large animals. Um, so like the elephant has larger glomeruli with longer tubules, but the whale has smaller glomeruli with shorter tubules. How does that relate to the fact that it goes underwater? Why is smaller glomeruli better for deep diving? That's a really good question that I'm happy to defer to our expert or to someone else. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> I don't know that we know. A lot of these like they're really fun to have a teleologic explanation of like, oh, this is how this thing does this thing. But honestly, we're often just trying to put sense to evolution that just yeah. kind of kludged together a solution here and it kludged it together multiple different independent times. And so like for some animals, it might have kludged a big glomeruli and for others, it might have just done a small one. Is that, is that a fair is that a fair dodge, Kelly? Yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> we, we will never know why anything happened, right? But we can try to figure out how it perhaps happened. Whales are mammals. They breathe air. And so, you know, they're going to feel pressure, unlike say a shark that doesn't breathe air. It doesn't have air in it. You know, it can go very deep and the pressure is not really going to affect it. So I think the idea is that with this extreme external hydrostatic pressure, you're going to push your body fluids into different compartments. And so, you know, that's how your, you, your lungs will collapse and you'll get fluid in your lungs and all these bad things. And so the whales have all these adaptations and it's probably the same for the kidney that if you're all this outside pressure is squishing on this whale, then the urine or the ultrafiltrate isn't going to be, you know, going in the right direction. And it's going to be, you know, pushed into the tissues and you're going to have all this urea reabsorbed and stuff that you probably don't want and all this bad stuff, all the waste you're trying to get rid of may not get rid of. So I think that's sort of the idea, but again, it's, you know, think how hard it is to study a diving whale. So a lot of the research we know about this comes from smaller animals that are sort of forced to dive, but we've still found out some really interesting things. And I like agree. seals and graduate students, yeah, like you just exactly. make them go down. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's th- this kidney structure is so cool to me. And there's like hundreds of these renules, but it is reminiscent of the human kidney, you know, where you have your, um, the lobes of the kidney, like when we develop and then eventually you have your pyramids. Right. And so it is very reminiscent of that. It's just, they have done it even better. And they are all these little individual kidneys connected together with these little short, super cool nephrons. It makes sense to have a shorter tubule because if you're diving deep and you're having all of these pressures, you don't want a really, really, really long tubule that's going to be subjected to all these pressures and you're going to have a lot of increased resistance to that. So it makes sense to have a lot more shorter tubules in order to enable ongoing filtration. And then they talk about cilia and other things. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense to me from that perspective. I actually have the opposite reaction. In my head, it seems like it's over-engineered. Like this seems incredibly inefficient. Does the whale lose anything for this? Like, do they lose some of their like metabolic benefit of not having to supply energy to this much individual surface area of kidney? It it just seems a bit complex than other uh, similar animals might potentially need for the amount of energy that it could expend. I was going to say, when they dive, basically the kidneys are no longer perfused. So you have this underperfused kidney that's becoming anoxic because again, they can dive for up to an hour in some cases, right? Does the structure then help reduce their the free radicals and things like that. And so one of the things that a really old study showed was that the proximal tubules too are modified and have these huge glycogen stores. And so the idea is that during a dive, they aren't you know, focused on aerobic respiration, but rather switch to anaerobic and use these uh, glycogen stores. Again, there's probably lots of mechanisms that are stopping them from being damaged, but yeah, the energy involved, I'm sure is all messed up every time they dive. 
and the protection against like ischemia reperfusion has got to be really like a cool, a bunch of cool mechanisms that do that. Like you imagine like NAD biosynthesis is off the charts and all these other things that would like protect you in like a sepsis setting would probably be going nuts in a whale every time it goes down below 10 meters or something. And I mean, again, we have to remember this is a mammal that lives in salt water. And so where does it get its fresh water from, right? Like, so it turns out that a lot of, you know, whales eat fish and different organisms where they're osmolality is similar to us around 300, 330 milliosmoles. And so that's actually how they get their water, right? They don't, can't just go to the tap and pour themselves a glass of fresh water. And so whales have some really cool um, ways of regulating their fluid electrolyte balance. Can you imagine calculating like a free mackerel clearance or something? <laughs> yeah, like we yeah. needed to figure out how much water it took to fix the sodium of a whale. A free like, first mackerel of all, that total clearance? Oh that's what I'm going right? Yeah, I like it. Okay. Okay. Uh, is there any, when you go to these meetings, is anybody carrying around a whale kidney around their neck? Does that also happen? Haven't, that, haven't seen a whale, whale kidney. kidney not attached whale to kidney. Yeah. It's hard because it's so huge. It's like the size of a human baby, right? Yeah. It's like seven pounds of kidney yeah. for the whale. I've carried around a human baby before. I was going to say, I was going to say, we got some people here that have some experience. As a man, I am a wuss and I (laughs) (laughs) could not carry them around it all day without complaining. Okay. So whale versus giraffe. I got to, I got to say, I think it's the giraffe without a doubt in this first one. I am way more, way more impressed with the giraffe physiology here. I might argue only because I really liked the terminology that you, that was used about the hoofed pig deer-like animal that it has evolved from that evolved from the, the, the big india the indian pig but they the but it was pig. described as a hoofed pig deer-like animal um yeah. and it reminds me of the man bear pig from south park <laughs> yeah oh my gosh okay but that, that is a good point think- to bring up <laughs> is that I forgot that the giraffe and the whale are more closely related than other mammals, right? Because they share that common uh, Indian pig uh, guy Co- we're talking connection. about. There okay. you go. Indian cool. pig with hooves. Hooved Indian yeah. pig. Got it. Okay. Keep that in mind. Who's on team whale in this group? I'm on team whale. I'm on team whale. I'm on team whale. Three whales and four giraffes. Okay, a, a split, a split decision here in the first, in the top half of the bracket. Going to the bottom half of the bracket, we've got the bear versus the lungfish. Nine, give us the rundown on the American black bear. Yeah, so the bear is definitely the Mike Tyson in this in this fight here. There's there's no way this is going to lose. So if you guys are listening to this podcast, I assume you're either somehow related to medicine or you accidentally clicked on this thinking it was a coffee podcast. But imagine you had a patient. That was, you know, <laughs> coffee podcast. I have no idea where this is going. So if you had a patient that was 400 pounds, didn't eat or drink for five months, decreased their GFR by 70% and came into the hospital, you would not guess that their BUN was five to 10, but that's what bears do. So these guys hibernate for seven months out of the year to get ready for that. They gorge themselves all fall. And they eat, you know, what is it, 15 to 20,000 kilocalories per day to get ready for this, build up adipose tissue, which they're going to live off of. And then while they hibernate, they actually decrease their metabolism like crazy. So they get bradycardic, they get bradypneic, is that a word? They slow their respiratory rate down and they don't move, urinate, or defecate for that entire time. And that explains why they can kind of, you know, get away with some of this without eating because they slow their metabolic rate down. They also live off their fat stores, which generate CO2 and water to keep them hydrated, but it doesn't explain how they clear the small amount of waste products that they have to be producing. So what's cool about this, as opposed to humans, is that they can uh, reabsorb their entire filtrate from their kidney and their bladder. And that's about 100 cc's or so per day after decreasing their GFR about, by about 70%. So they're functionally anuric. But what do they do with that urea? They can actually resynthesize amino acids with the urea that's generated and that helps maintain lean muscle mass and turns out they also like shiver periodically so that they're not totally still and they don't they don't become osteoporotic and you know lose all their muscle as they're sleeping but let's go uh, let's go back to this let's go back to this nitrogenous waste because this was a, a focus of this a couple of focuses of the scouting report one that if you metabolize fat, it generates CO2 and water, and they use that water for metabolism. So that was very cool. And doesn't generate any nitrogenous waste. There's nothing for the kidney to get rid of, really. If you think about it, all the stuff that we normally need to clear with our kidneys, so proton and potassium and phosphorus and urea, it's all generated from protein. So, you know, I, if we, I guess, just 
lived off our fat we maybe not we may not need kidneys so like the low protein diet makes sense is that what you're saying if you're hibernating <laughs> <laughs> i have a question about these hibernation adaptations it's like i think of mostly mammals doing hibernating like bears and i think the art the scanning report talks about like squirrels. some other small mammal squirrels right like that do hibernating too and I thought that this was like a uniquely mammal thing, but but I guess I'm actually, so in my outside of kidney world, we went to an emu farm last weekend and male emus apparently sit on the nest for like two months at a time without eating or drinking or urinating or defecating. And emus are definitely not mammals. Uh, <laughs> and mammals. so I don't know, <laughs> like I'm a, I'm a people doctor, not an emu doctor, but like what, where's the program come from for this? Like not eating, not drinking, not making any waste. Like, like what's the earliest ancestor that we had that does this and how did we not get this plan? You know, this may not be a sort of a conserved trait, like you're talking about that every mm. lineage from, you know, the evolution of the vertebrates, but lots of animals and even invertebrates have a state of reducing their metabolic rate and conserving water and stuff. So that's a torpor. Okay. That's the mm -hmm. actual physio physiological act. Hibernation is a long torpor in winter. And when we get to the lungfish, we're going to talk about estivation, which is a long torpor in the heat, right? So it's possible that this is just sort of an adaptation that has evolved multiple times independently in different lineages. And it's not something mm -hmm. that was shared by a common ancestor because you're right. There's the, a few mammals that do it. There's birds that do it, that, you know, there's frogs that completely freeze in the winter, you know, things like that. There's fishes that freeze mm -hmm. down in the Arctic sea and stuff like that. So there's lots of different examples of torpor in in nature, but it's likely not something that was conserved in a in a common ancestor like you're kind of describing. I'm going to put in for animal madness instead of meth madness 11 just to get at all this cool physiology. I think that would be just awesome. I wholeheartedly agree. I was thinking the same thing. The convergent evolution side of it, I think, should be a theme one year where it's all the different animals that are from extremely different lineages that have developed similar renal physiology um, and just trying to understand why and how that could happen. But uh, so a question related to that, is there much done yet on on how the climate change may be affecting mm -hmm. um, this, the ability for bears, for example, to develop their necessary hypothermia and some of these other adaptations. I'm sure there's a lot of research related to that, especially with the polar bears and things like that. And so the problem is, yeah, their physiology is set up for the seasonal hibernation. And now if it's warm and hot, you know, that's really going to affect their lifestyle <laughs> besides the fact that they may not have an environment anymore since it's all melting away. But, but yeah, I think there's a lot of research done on that. I can't tell you much more. I'm not up on it, but I know there's been a lot of talk about this. I just, I grew up in this, in like this general vicinity and I ne never experienced a day in February that was in the seventies, like today. So very uh, curious what happened to all the bears that we used to see in our backyard that mm -hmm. would be hibernating all winter. Some may have accidentally emerged early Yeah, and what that could do to their ability to then have a normal hibernation schedule. And if that's okay for them to have shorter hibernation periods, or if that somehow is anti, uh, anti kidney. Yeah. Well, I mean, they came up with this because they had to deal with a, a long, cold winter where there was food was hard to come by, right? So somehow they evolved this hibernation tactic to let them survive and then thrive in the spring and have their offspring and then start the cycle again. So I would think climate change is significantly going to impact that and then significantly affect their health. You know, I guess we can't tell, we probably won't be able to tell in our lifetime if that's a an okay thing that they can handle, or if this is something else that, you know, may decimate their populations. Has anybody kept up on the, you know, these bears do this hyperphagia prior to going into uh, hibernation and every year they actually have a competition looking at people vote on the most amazing gluttonous bear and <laughs> their yes. pre and post appearance. <laughs> Anyways, I was just reading about this and it looks like o Otis won Alaska, uh, Alaska's fat bear week contest. <laughs> Um, most recently. So I just wanted to bring that up. There is fat bear week that occurs in Alaska in preparation for their hibernation. Uh, can we just talk about this nitrogenous waste story? So they take the urea, they reabsorb that urea and they turn it back into amino acids and they have radio, they did radio labeled urea testing and they were able to show that the carbon, the radio labeled carbon as that was part of urea got put into new proteins. But I guess my question is like, you need to, you turn proteins into urea 
And if the whole point is then to take urea and put it back into proteins, why go through this process at all? Like what, why, why metabolize the proteins in the first place? Urea is the end result of protein metabolism. I mean, you still need energy. You think this is from metabolism? I mean, the majority of it is into fat energy. metabolism, but you have to have protein metabolism. I don't think you can completely that's shut the it source off. Of it, and that's mm-hmm. the source of the of protein metabolism. That makes more sense. And to protect muscle, right? Yeah. Otherwise, they'd lose all their uh, they'd lose all their muscle. And to not have cytotoxic effects of really high u- urea concentrations when you're not producing any urine. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a brilliant thing. It gives you another source of protein without you having to eat and helps not have cytotoxic effects of excess nitrogen. Why is not more research being put into this? You know, like you can take your urea and you can put it back to your muscle mass while your fat is being broken down. Imagine how good we would all be it's win-win, exactly. while doing nothing. We won't pee. We won't poop. I mean, we literally will be gaining we muscle. Eat- well, not gaining, but not losing when as much muscle. When would we ever do Wordle? If we had no that time the the toilet. I <laughs> know <laughs> it seems like it would fit well with a G suit. Have it be like the perfect yeah. capsule and be like uh, urine recycling, just like what they do in Dune, right? Yeah, that sounds perfect. Jordi, I love, I love that you bring in the full dork cycle because that sounds good. Have you seen Dune? It's the best, that suit. I feel like half of these animals, that's what they're embracing is like what we wish we could do and we had used technology to do. The still suit. Okay. Any other thoughts on the American black bear? Okay. Lungfish. You sound unenthused, Joel. No, I thought by far this was the coolest thing I ever read. First of all, the animal itself is super cool. And then I was like, oh yeah, so it can it can bury itself in the mud. And then it was like four months. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> or, or years even, right? I mean, it was just yeah. blew, yeah. blew me years. away. I was absolutely yeah. stunned by the length of time. And, and what's the what's the term? It's not hibernation. It's what estivation. What's the definition of estivation? It's just a prolonged torpor during summer months, hot, hot and dry. So hibern- hibernation happens in the winter, and estivation Cold, happens yeah. in the summer. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, and you you mentioned the word torpor a bunch of times, so that sort of encompasses both of these things. Is it? Yeah, it's the actual physiological process. Slowing the metabolism. Yeah, conserving water. There's one other characteristic that's escaped my mind right now. So the lungfish, just to give a description, looks like a fish and then it can come out into onto the land and it's got these little appendages that are its fins and it sort of scoots itself along. If you guys could see me right now on the Zoom, because we're on Zoom, I'm trying to scoot myself along on the mud Um, and it looks like a fish. But it's actually an obligate uh, air breather, and it does have a single lung, which is absolutely fascinating. So it would truly drown in water if it's not able to breathe air. However, without water, it will die because it will desiccate. So I think that's what's super fascinating about the lungfish. So it truly is sort of spanning our fish and our lung-breathing ancestors. And even they go back to say that... um, It really has not undergone, it's somewhat similar to our hagfish sort of in the fact that it has not undergone significant evolutionary change for 400 million years or more. And it is the nearest common ancestor to all living amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals with fish. Just going back, because I did make the visual abstract for the hagfish. And that is like the shared ancestor between, if I get this right, mollusks and fish, right? Yeah, so- Hagfish were are the earliest uh, chordates or the first mm-hmm. vertebrates. First, so vertebrates. it is yeah, it is the you shared a common ancestor with what became the fishes and the mammals and the yeah. frogs, like you're saying. Yeah. So now we're one step ahead, and we're looking at our lungfish, and we're basically looking at the evolution from fish to out of the water, and they're kind of a sign the way um, from fish to philosopher, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the original title was that fish to lungfish not so not so catchy he had to change that up <laughs> and they're also supporting the idea that um, animals first learn to breathe and walk in water before they came out of water so i think that's super cool okay so going back to what they do they these guys are like obligate air breathers they have their single lung Uh, They would drown in water if they couldn't breathe air, but if they were to come out of water, they would desiccate. So what happens is they are living in areas where literally there are droughts and they need to do something to survive for up to years 
Um, so they burrow and they create this nice little hole or burrow in the mud and they cocoon themselves in this mucus that they make. Very hagfishy. I know, right? Very And they create a small... <laughs> They create a small, a small breathing hole and they can be in the state of torpor or estivation for up to four years, which is pretty fascinating. And in that time frame, they're able to decrease their metabolism and they become anuric. And like you said, this is like dormancy in the setting of hot and dry environments. So what they do is their kidney can adapt from a high water intake and excretion into scarcity and conservation mechanisms. And it's fascinating because they can truly change their structure. So um, the renal corpuscle, it will shrink. The glomerular capillaries will collapse. Bowman's capsule parietal cells, parietal cells will actually stratify. The glomerular basement membrane will thicken four times its regular size. And the podocytes will even arrange themselves quite a bit. And all this done is to reduce the filtration coefficient and it minimizes filtration and it conserves water. The podocytes really, I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, you read what happens to the podocytes. It sounds like this is on the on the way to, you know, minimal changes. Like they, yeah. they, they, mm-hmm. they turn into little cubes. Yeah, they become cuboidal. They lose their foot processes. Mm-hmm. Like it really sounds like this is pretty bad pathology. Bad. Yeah, it sounds yeah. terrible. Basically, their goal is to reduce the area of filtration. Is there decreased renal blood flow or glomerular blood flow in this state as well? Like you wonder if there's just like less blood flow pressure pushing outwards on these on these uh, glomeruli. So based on what I read in my limited study, Josh, I don't have an answer to that. I'm not sure we know, but I'm, I would think that's what, that's the case again, you know? It reminds me of this neat paper from 2020. We can put this in the show notes. That's like a, a molecular mechanism explaining albuminuria and kidney disease. And it's kind of like the opposite extreme. Like if you, the idea is that the podocytes kind of push in on the basement membrane and that in settings of like podocyte foot process effacement, you get less inward pushing force, more outward pushing force from the blood vessel and more like albumin spilling through the basement membrane. Here, it feels like almost like you just got like so much less, so much less renal blood flow that your capillary like collapses inwards and that GBM thickens and kind of gets like more or less albuminuric, less filtration-y in this cool way. The interesting thing, the way it's described is, you know, they talk about the difference between it's a pathophysiologic process for us, but this foot process flattening and the loss of this change in their shape to being more cuboidal is really aiming to alter that area of filtration. So this is very reminiscent of last year when we talked about the evolution of the nephron, right? When fishes went from freshwater where they have to handle all this free water, the quickest way to do that is to just filter it out. But when they migrated into seawater, now they had the opposite. They wanted to conserve that water. So actually that's where we got the shrinking of the glomeruli and some like the seahorse even kick glomerulus out altogether. And so this is very similar, you know, the lungfish needs to conserve water. It's in this hot environment in this little burrow it's made itself to wait till moisture returns. And so time to have that glomerulus go away. So you're not filtering all this water. And what's fascinating is with the reintroduction of water, it changes its structure within days. I mean, it's a rapid, rapid change in structure. Yeah. Extreme plasticity. Are these kidneys able to still clear metabolic waste in the middle when they're estivating? Is estimating the word? Is it a verb? Should be. I think if it's so. not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so these kidneys that we've described, all we've described all the reasons that they would suck at filtering, but they would do they still do some? Is there still some waste products that are cleared by the kidney? They have some clearance or no? I don't think we know. No. But my guess is no. Okay. Four years just marinating in your own waste. Mucus, mucus. Now I will tell you something, (laughs) this, this cocoon they make, this mucus layer is more than just a mucus. And a paper came out a few years ago talking about how the cocoon itself is a living tissue. And so it turns out that they get all these granulocytes. There's a whole bunch of them in the kidney for some reason. It's a, you know, they made an observation in like the thirties that there's all these granulocytes in the, in the kidney. I, I don't know what they do in the lungfish. Maybe it again, helps prevent AKI and chronic kidney disease, but they end up producing them in their skin too. And they end up you know, migrating from the skin into the cocoon. And they think it's a way to keep bacteria from entering in and injuring these lungfish while they're estivating. So the cocoon is part of them and alive. I think that's so creepy. Well, I thought the same thing. I was like, man, these guys are all getting minimal change disease in their little mucus cocoons. But so, (laughs) so does that mean in minimal change disease in humans, 
is the podocyte effacement in fly, you know, the changes that we see, is that a pathologic process or actually a beneficial line of defense from our kidney to say, man, I don't want to lose all this albumin? Well, if it's beneficial, it doesn't it work is, very well because they still lose a lot of yeah. albumin. I think if people listen to the prior episode of Freely Filtered, they'll hear a great discussion of like the etiology of minimal change disease and the like molecular mechanism. <laughs> but I think we have a better sense of what's happening in the molecular level of minimal change disease now than even we did a year ago. Certainly better than we do of the lungfish in the middle of estivation. Certainly do, yeah. And so <laughs> I wonder- The studies there about, are very poor. Yeah, and, and the rate of publishing on lungfish even slower than the rate of publishing on, on minimal change disease. But it would be interesting to see how these like podocyte structure changes are, are different between minimal change disease and like lungfish estivation. Cause I think there's something different here clearly, but I don't know if it's just like decreased GFR through these like weird looking podocytes or if there's some other like structural thing about the podocytes that's also preserving albumin in the setting of estivation compared to non-estivation. Okay. Okay. Anything else in the lungfish that anybody want to talk about? It's a, by the way, it's a badass name, lungfish. It's the, it's the coolest thing. I'm team lungfish 100%. Okay. So let's go lungfish versus, um, black bear, American black bear. Who's got, who's, who's on team black bear. I'm supporting black Black bear Bear all the way. Bear week all the way. And then lungfish, the lungfish. Lungfish, my bills. I'm going with swap myself and Kelly. Yeah, I switched sides. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's funny. I filled out a bracket earlier and I went bare. And I'm gonna when I actually do the real bracket, I'm gonna do I'm going lungfish. Okay. So again, a split decision here. Uh nine, who's who do you got coming out of the animal animal house bracket? Who's your who's your bracket winner here? Your Uh, I have bear. I have bear, bear is the winner. If, if bear loses, it's a huge upset, and I will buy all you guys drinks in Boston. Excellent. I like that plan because bear's going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, what do you got? I think we have too many blood pressure nerds not to have it be giraffe on the blue ribbon oh, panel. I think it's going to be giraffe. Giraffe. That's a good. Oh, I like that reasoning. I like that reasoning. Sophia, what do you got? You know, I'm in debate. I I kind of I think the lungfish is cool. I think the whale's cool. I think they're all cool. They're all cool. I'm gonna it's tell you, I don't bracket. think I don't think that giraffe is gonna get it. There's lots of hypertensive dorks. It's not gonna get it. Bear's not gonna get it. I'm trying to like which do I like more? I like the whale. Which do I think might win? I think might at least between the animals. I think maybe the lungfish will. So I'm going to I'm going to go against my love of my what are they called again? The cetaceans mm-hmm. who have evolved from the land back to the water and I'm going to go with the lungfish. Lungfish. It hurts lungfish. a little bit, but I'm doing it. Jordy, what do you got? I same as Josh. I got to go with the giraffe. I yeah. really want to like recreate that capsule material and create armor out of it. I think it just sounds like the coolest thing. The way that they <laughs> that protect their renal capsules. Can we just? Can we just? Uh, Plus three giraffe armor from the from the capsule of the, the kidney. <laughs> that G suit. Let's just point out that Josh wants to create a skincare line while while Jordy wants to create armor. So. <laughs> You know, we're all into flexible gender roles here on Freely Filtered. Like, we're not. <laughs> Swap, what do you got? I have, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? I like blood pressure. Uh, the blue ribbon panel is, you know, blood pressure peeps. So it's going to be the giraffe. Uh, if they don't choose giraffe, you know what I'm going to say. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, yeah, okay. I'm going to go lungfish. I love the lungfish. And they give Kelly the last word for the podcast. Kelly, what do you got? I mean, I'm a recovering fish physiologist. So I'm going lungfish all the way. <laughs> Uh, Excellent. Okay, very good. Uh, anybody have any uh, tubular secretions? Let's get these done and get the, and, and get this out. Quick, I really want to meet Kelly in person. Yeah, Kelly, <laughs> are you going to be at NKF Spring Clinical? I am not. Anybody going to an experimental biology meeting or AKI CRRT? No. I like that. How about ASM Kidney Week in Orlando next year? You'll be there? ASN, it'll be, yes. Okay. Who's got who's got a tubular secretion? Just who's going to start with that? I, I can talk about a podcast. Can I can talk about a rival podcast. Yeah, for sure, please. Um, so the, uh, I'm involved in um, uh, an American Heart Association uh, podcast series. It's just going to be a series of six episodes on unmet needs in hypertension. Uh, we finished recording the first one on adherence, uh, which has got a really nice patient segment with uh, Carolyn Thomas, who tweets as Heart Sisters. As well as uh, oh yeah, Chaudhry from she's Brigham. a Canadian. Yeah. She had a heart attack, right? As a woman who wasn't recognized. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. No, she's so got she's a pretty compelling story. Yeah. 
exactly. So she's on, and Nitish Chaudhary is on, who's uh, who wrote the AHA statement. What's and what's the name of it? one more time? What's the name of the podcast? So the American Heart Association AHA uh, Unmet Needs in Hypertension. And is it already out or is it pending? No, it, it will be coming out next week. So it should be out by the time this episode Perfect. comes out. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Nine. Do you ever got a, a tubular secretion? Just gonna say. Um, so you know, Omicron hit us pretty hard, where um, our daycare kept closing, and so we really had a rough time with our with our two kids. 2022 really started as a kind of a big pile of dog poop for us. And um, all I was looking forward to was baseball season. Two days ago, pitchers and catchers were supposed to report. There's still no breakthrough there with the lockout. And uh, well, now we're getting stories about players and the clubhouses snorting Percocets and oxycodone off the uh, off toilet seats and stuff. And so this has been a huge bummer because I love baseball. We're not supposed to be snorting Percocets off of toilet seats. I don't believe so. Seems like a COVID risk. It doesn't seem seem sanitary. If you're going to be snorting your cup, if you're going to be snorting Percocets, there are better ways to do it. Okay, good to know. Okay, Josh, what do you got? Yeah, I um, I really enjoyed a non-medicine podcast for the last couple of weeks that folks may have heard already by this point. Uh, Don't tell me Joe Rogan. Do not say Joe Rogan. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> uh, the Trojan Horse Affair, which is a podcast from the New York Times and Serial, is this like eight episode dive into a, a school district hoax that happened in Birmingham, England. And it's about a letter that's not real and how it led to like a lot of anti-Muslim policy making by very high up folks in the British government. Uh, and so it's Brian Reed who did the reporting for the S-Town podcast and a new reporter, uh, Hamza Syed, who is a doctor turned journalist whose experience with this podcast, experience with reporting this story is going to turn him off of journalism forever. And it's like a really interesting dive into this one place in England and this one story and the making of an investigative journalism series. So, so highly recommend for like eight episodes, like one good week of driving to and from work. Nice. Nice. Sophia, what do you got? Gosh, you know, my brain has been somewhat blank for the past like week or so, but um, I recently was able to get my kids skiing and up on the mountains and um, I thought in Colorado they were born on skis. That's not the case. So I was born on skis pretty much. I was two and a half when I started skiing and that like literally defined me for a while. And then COVID threw us off with my oldest child. And he finally, we got him into like sequential lessons this year and he's doing fantastically and he's independent. He can get on the lift, he can get off the lift and he can ski and he loves it. My three-year-old, we have been, you know, we've got him on the harness and when I was younger and, you know, before I, right before I went into medical school, I lived in Vail, Colorado for three years and I was a ski bum. I did quote unquote um, research for an orthopedic group, but really I was just a (laughs) ski bum. (laughs) And so I would see that and I swore I would never do that. Anyways, I put my child in the harness and you hold on to him with, with two ropes and you let him go down and he doesn't know how to stop. He doesn't know how to turn. It's kind of like flying a kite and you just sort of pull a little bit on the right or pull a bit, a little bit on the left to make sure they don't go into trees and stuff. And it's super cool. But my three-year-old, he's, he just turned three and he's got this insane imagination. And we were going up the other lift that the lift the other day. And he starts telling me, and he goes, do you see those trees over there? The ski papa lives over there. And I'm like the ski papa. And he starts telling me this entire story about ski papa and ski papa pulls you from the, the mountain and steals your skis. I don't know where the story is going, but I'm just absolutely amazed at a three-year-old's imagination that I couldn't even do now. In any case, he's probably almost as good as my six-year-old now, just because I took him down and let him fly. And now I've got him off the harness and he's turning and pretty much with my six-year-old. So nice, but he's scared of the ski papa. So he doesn't go yeah. close to the trees. Ah. Fair enough. We all should be scared of the ski papa. Okay. Jordy, what do you got? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do another cross promotion with another podcast. I've had the pleasure of being on Gerbsiders recently and had a blast. Um, the episode came out February 14th on hypertension. So I know it's another hypertension themed issue. Well, and I, 
honestly, the curbsiders really need the support of Freely Filtered to get people to listen to it. I'm glad you're promoting yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> this was like, a, I just want to like second, this is a great episode and I oh, almost thanks. endorsed Jordy's episode of Curbsiders as my endorsement. <laughs> it was just really like a nice discussion of hypertension and some really like high level hypertension moves that I had never thought about before. So so thank you, Jordy, for the awesome episode. Thanks for the plug. I appreciate it. So yeah, I, I had a blast. I hope that folks listen to it if they don't usually listen to Curbsiders. I it might be a lot of crossover and I realize there's probably some that isn't. So, um, and you'll get to hear the story about frostbite ice axes and, um, drunks and lampposts. So some other fun stuff too. Excellent. I didn't know Jordy was so cool until I listened to this episode. <laughs> How did you not know she was so cool? Come on. The hundred sided die was like the thing I know. Right, that was the thing. You were that negated a lot. I get it. Okay. Yeah. But like, I make bad life decisions. Yeah. yeah, clearly. Kelly, what do you got? No, I mean, I'm. thanks for having me again. And it was fun to be here. And I always enjoy the NFJC crew. So Excellent. go Animal House. I hope it goes all the way this year. And there's a, a documentary on Netflix, The Alpinist. Has anybody seen this? It's about this free climber. It's like the free solo, but it's a, it's a unbelievable, really, I thought it was really well done. Really interesting guy does just extreme climbs, free soloing all over the, all over the planet. And it's a, it's a good one. I'd recommend that. Is that the guy that ended up dying? Well, you kind of spoiled it right there. Yeah. So that does happen at the end of the episode and now you don't need to watch it. This will be